We, uh, as you can see, the uh, communion elements are know that whatever the Bible tells us about the Passover is uh, uh, has been completed by the work of Jesus. But I think it's important for us to recognize what the Bible says about how the Passover came about and, and so forth. The Passover is not part of the law of Moses. The Passover was instituted before the law was ever given to Moses. And it's the first blood sacrifice that God gave to the nation of Israel. Now we know that there were other things that happened. For example, the Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve fell, God made skins for them uh, to use as clothes. And the implication, if not, uh, if it doesn't say it outright, the implication is that God offered or showed Adam and Eve how to offer a sacrifice when those skins were uh, being prepared. But the Passover is different. It's different from any other thing that God's ever done. You remember in the Old Testament when it tells us about how that God appeared to Moses, sent him to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. And you remember all the things that were surrounding that and, and things pertaining to that. There were nine plagues that uh, took place. And every one of the plagues was an attack on Israel's gods. They worshipped the Nile. So God turned the river into blood. They worshipped frogs. So God filled the land with frogs. They worshipped locusts and all other kinds of idols that they had made to themselves or for themselves. And every one of the first nine plagues of Egypt that came upon Egypt was God showing the people that he's God and not who they were worshiping. When it comes around to the tenth plague, it was the death of the firstborn, and God gave specific instructions to Israel about how to operate or, or how to perform this uh, sacrifice, this Passover sacrifice, to save their houses. So I'm going to start in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be to you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. God saying, what I'm about to do and, and uh, the significance of the Passover makes this the start of your year. Everything about Israel's yearly calendar started with this. It's as if God is placing a priority upon this action, this Passover, that supersedes anything and everything else there is. This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year unto you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two, door, two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat of it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire, his head with the legs and with the puritanates thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. He says, use it all up. That signifies or represents all the blessings of God and all the things that were fulfilled through Jesus being our Passover for us. It's God saying, don't leave anything left unused or undone. Take advantage of everything that there is. 
You shall let none of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth, remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. The fire, fire represents the sacrifice that Jesus made. It represents the, the fact that he went to hell for you. And thus shall you eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Folks, there comes a point in time when God gets fed up with how things are. And he says, okay, that's it. There's even an an instance in the Old Testament where God gave up on a tribe of Israel. He said, Ephraim has joined himself to his idols. Don't pray for him anymore. We talk about the God of mercy and thank God he is. But there comes a point in time where things have to be paid for. And the blood shall be unto you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. And you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day shall you put away leaven out of your houses. For what whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be a holy convocation. And in the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. Uh, Let's, uh, let's get down to verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike, half the, uh, and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out at the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and upon the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. Now, folks, how long is forever? Does he mean till Jesus comes? Does he mean until the church age is over? Or does he really mean forever? You know, I think, um, I think sometimes we overlook the importance of uh, the ordinances of God in this respect. The Bible indicates to us that there's a lot of things that we do here, the Passover uh, being one of them or what we call communion. Some of those things are going to endure throughout eternity. Some of those things are going to take place even when when we get to heaven as a part of our worship of God and Jesus' His Son. If God is establishing something forever, how important should we recognize that to be? I hope you see my point. And it shall come to pass when you be come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he has promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, 
What mean ye by this service? That you will say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. <clears throat> the girls in my house are out of town. <clears throat> and so I have no opportunity. My dogs don't talk much. <laughs> so I miss my normal opportunity to get my voice working. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, what mean you by this service? That you shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed their head and worshipped. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded. Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass that at midnight... The Lord smote all the firstborn of the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on the throne until the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. He called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, rise up. And get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as you have said. Also take of your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened. And their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So that they lent unto them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. The word that's used here for lent and borrowed um, really are, are poor choices. What they did is they demanded payment for the time that they were slaves. And after having seen the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn in every house, they met no resistance whatsoever. It's almost as if the people, long before Pharaoh did, but the people got it. The people understood the God of Israel is God. Psalm 105 verse 37 says that God led them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. Now the next uh, couple of chapters tell us about how that Moses took the children of Israel, led them out of Egypt, got to a place where the Red Sea was in front of them and mountains on either side. But Pharaoh had changed his mind and he was coming with the purpose or the intent of wiping out the children of Israel. But you remember the story about how God appeared in a pillar of fire and he separated Israel, kept them safe from the Egyptian army. They couldn't pass through or beyond the fire. Moses comes to the Red Sea. The people murmur, they're afraid. So they ask him, what are you going to do or why have you done this to us? And Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Then he turns to God and says, God, what are we going to do? God rebukes him. He says, why cry unto me? Now, in my thinking, it's perfect time to cry unto him. (laughs) You've got the world's strongest army on your tail. Nowhere to go. It would seem the perfect opportunity to entreat the Lord Or at least get some direction from him. But the direction that God gives Moses is to use the sign of authority that he already had. You remember the staff that uh, Moses had in his hand when he stood before the burning bush. God asked him, what's in your hand? He said, a stick. He said, throw it down. And threw it down and it became a snake. He said, grab it by the tail. And when he did, it became a stick again. And there were a number of times, most of the plagues were instituted or they began with Moses either stretching out his hand with the rod 
or smiting the ground with, his, with the rod or something like that. In most, every one of the plagues, at least uh, as much as the Bible tells us, that sign of authority, which looked like an ordinary stick, but even a stick is blessed when God's behind it. So God tells Moses, use the rod. It's a symbol to us to use the authority that we've been given. Now, when God says to Moses, why are you crying to me? Use what I gave you. That, to me, indicates that there's a, there's a um, well, let me call it a higher place. A higher place that God wants his people to enjoy. It's as if God says to Moses, you can't go through the mountains on either side of you. You can't retreat because that's where Pharaoh's armies are. So move this water out of the way. Now, we know it was the power of God that moved the water, but God said very specifically that Moses was the one that divided the sea. I can't help but think that we've got a bigger place or there is made available for us. We have the potential to stand in a greater place of authority than any of us have discovered. So Moses divides the Red Sea. Israel goes across on dry ground. God removes the pillar of fire when Israel is through. And Pharaoh's armies and chariots go into the Red Sea that at that point was still divided. But then God, halfway across, took the wheels off of the chariots, the Bible says, so that they were stuck. And then the waters came back together and destroyed the most powerful military force on the face of the earth. Folks, we look at governments, we look at the strength of kingdoms, and we're impressed by military might in many cases and in many situations. We see these things that are a part of our world, a natural part of our world, and it's easy to become, well, I hate to say it this way, but I don't know any other way to say it. It's easy to become cowed down by what we think man can do. But in a matter of minutes, God destroyed the strongest military force on the face of the earth at that time. In minutes. We need to get to know who we serve. Amen. Amen. Well, so Israel is delivered from Egypt. It's a type of the new birth where God delivers us from the bondage of sin and death and brings us into the promised land, which is a type of the new life that we have in Christ Jesus. So Israel, after seeing the mighty hand of God at work, the destruction of the, of the Egyptian army. Israel begins to worship God in a great way, as you well can imagine. Imagine the euphoria that these people, anywhere from two to seven million people, the smallest estimate I've seen is two million. The largest I've seen is seven. I, I don't know how to figure it out. It's an estimate, no matter what. It tells us that there were 600,000 men. Then when you add children and women and so forth, that's the only thing that I know of that people use to try to determine what the the size of the crowd was. So let's use 2 million just to be safe. Let's use the low end. First of all, how do you find 2 million people that that nobody's sick? It says he brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. Well, what about the old people? People that aren't even, 
wouldn't necessarily have to be sick, but would certainly have the possibility of being feeble. Well, they worship God. They recognize. And, and again, how would you feel if you were part of that crowd? How would you feel to know that the God that just destroyed the Egyptian army wanted you? The God that destroyed the Egyptian army is the same today. And he still wants you. It seems to me that Israel should have seen that action, that activity, and decided once and for all, we got nothing to worry about here, guys. This God is our God. So they continue along their journey. They go three days into the wilderness and they haven't found any water, didn't find a place where there was any water until they get to Marah. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 15, verse 23. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the, the name of it was called Marah, which means bitterness. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance. Please notice those words, a statute and an ordinance. It means an everlasting rule. He showed them an everlasting truth. An everlasting truth. In other words, this is forever just like the Passover is forever. So he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them and said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now we've said before and it, uh, it bears repetition anytime we come upon a scripture like this where God said he will not put the diseases of Egypt on Israel these are permissive verbs. There's a permissive sense or, or uh, tense of the Hebrew language that the, the English language just doesn't have. It most closely resembles permit or to allow. But that doesn't capture it entirely either. And so the, the translators, I guess, in their understanding of God and the way things worked according to their understanding... They thought that God was the one that put sickness on some and took sickness off of others. That's impossible for it to be true because God never changes. The Bible says God's no respecter of persons and he never changes. He said himself, I am God, I change not. So that would mean that if he was better to one person by removing sickness than another person that he put sickness on, then the Bible is a lie. God has to want the same good for all, all people. He has to make a way for the blessings of God for everybody in order to not be a respecter of persons. So these verses here, along with many others throughout the Old Testament, that make it seem like God is the cause of sickness and disease or tragedy or whatever, he's simply saying, I will not permit the diseases of Egypt to come on you, which I have permitted to come on them. Now, why did he permit those things to come on the Egyptians? Well, Egypt represents sin. But we should also note that when they come out of Egypt, the Bible talks about a mixed company. There were a lot of Egyptians that left with them. There were a lot of Egyptians that were in the caravan and again, we don't know how many of those were, so that would have to add to the estimated total some way or another. But there were a lot of Egyptians that recognized that the plagues were judgments upon the, the gods of Egypt. 
And so they left with Israel. That's a smart group. Because the whole point of God bringing these plagues on Egypt was to show them your gods are not the God. So here they come. This is less than a week later from the victory and the destruction of, of over Egypt's army. And they come to a place where there's no water to drink. Moses gets revelation from God about what to do. He does it, and God proves them. He makes a statute and an ordinance, an unchanging truth. And he says very simply this, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, the way that this is written in the Hebrew is kind of interesting because it uses a um, continuous tense in the sentence structure. What that means is, when he said, I am the Lord that healeth thee, it means that he's eternally the healer, past, present, and future. But the interesting part about this to me is that because he used it, and he didn't have to, he could have used a word that just says, I will heal thee when you need me to. But the way that he said it, the words that are used could just as easily indicate that God is saying, I am the Lord that healed thee. In other words, there's some real strong evidence that we'll show you in a minute that the reason there was no feeble among the tribes of Israel when they came out of Egypt is because the Passover provided healing for them. If that's true, and the Passover is eternal, it's forever, then that would have to mean there's healing in the Passover for us too. The first name, there's seven, seven different names that God identifies himself as in the Old Testament. The first one that he identifies himself as is the God that healeth thee. That's what God chooses to reveal himself or reveal of himself to Israel. I am the God, your healer. Now I want you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. We're going to fast forward 765 years. Hezekiah becomes king. And he starts making reforms. He turns his heart to the Lord. And he starts making reforms. One of the first things that he does. Is that he calls the priests together. And he tells them. We want to reinstitute temple worship. Now it's unclear at this point whether the uh, temple worship is just stopped or if it's just being done in such a manner that it really doesn't fit God's instructions any further or anymore. So I'm going to read some of this. I'm not sure if I'll read the whole thing, but, but let's start in verse 1. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 1. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah to, and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover under the Lord God of Israel. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. Now remember the Passover was slated for the tenth day of the first month. But Hezekiah, in his attempt... And the work that he did to return the nation unto God decides to take upon himself the reinstitution of the Passover, even though it's the wrong time of year. So he sent these letters 
inviting everybody to Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently, neither had the people gathered themselves together to, to Jerusalem. In other words, it's saying Hezekiah recognized that it was more important for the priests to purify themselves and offer the sacrifice according to God's plan, even though it wasn't on the right month or the right day. But he didn't want to rush anything so that impure priests would be offering a sacrifice to God. And the thing pleased the king and all the congregation, so they established a decree to make a proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not done it of a long time in such sort as it was written. So it's been a long time that the Passover hasn't been kept. So the post went with, went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah. And according to the commandment of the king saying, You children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. And be not like your fathers and like your brethren which trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation as you see. Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord and enter into his sanctuary from which he has sanctified forever and serve the Lord your God that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive so that they shall come again unto this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. So the post passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn. Not everybody jumped on board with this. They laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, divers of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. And there assembled at Jerusalem much people to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. A very great congregation. And they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and all the altars for incense took they away and cast them into the brook Kidron, then they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the second month. Remember, it's supposed to be the 10th day of the first month. But they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought in the burnt offerings unto the house of the Lord. And they stood in their place after their manner, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood which they received of the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified. Therefore the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passovers for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them unto the Lord. Do you understand what it's trying to tell us? It's saying that since the people had gotten out of the habits of, of uh, keeping the Passover, they hadn't purified themselves. The ritual part of it was that they had to search the houses looking for any sign of leaven or anything impure and had to do away with that. Well, the people... Many of the people hadn't done that. And so if they, in their impurity, had offered the sacrifice of the Passover for their house, then it would have been an unworthy sacrifice in God's eyes. So the priests are having to do everybody's killing for them concerning the Passover lamb. They're the only ones that have sanctified themselves at this point. Verse 18, for a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet did they eat the Passover otherwise than it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, The good Lord pardon every one that prepareth his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. Notice verse 20. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. 
The Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Now, folks, realize the people had not done what they were supposed to do. They didn't sanctify themselves. They didn't purify themselves. They had no intent, it seems, outside of Hezekiah's purpose. They had no intent of reinstituting the, the Passover. Maybe they have, maybe the Passover has ceased for such a long time that they didn't remember anything about it. Remember, that was one of the things that God told Moses to tell the people. Here's what you tell your kids. The intention, God's intention, was for the Passover to be handed down from generation to generation, household to household. That clearly had not happened. But even offering it at the wrong time with much impurity among the people, notice the result of the Passover, the keeping of the Passover, the reinstitution of the Passover. It's just like what the Bible tells us about the original. Just as God was the God that healed Israel, I believe with all my heart that that's telling us or telling them, I'm the one that brought healing to you through the Passover. Now he does the same thing. God healed the people. Now folks, remember... The Passover is an eternal thing. It's forever thing. God never changes. So we've got two Old Testament references that indicate to us that the Passover was not just about the spilling of blood for the sins of the people or to cover over the sins of the people as it did when they first put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, side posts and the head or whatever you call it. It was not just about the forgiveness of sins. It was also about the restoration of physical health. Now, if that's true, and you've got to explain away some pretty significant scriptures to say that it's not true. If that's true, and it's a forever thing, then that means the same thing belongs to us now. That brings back into play what Moses was commanded of the Lord to tell the people. Use it all. Don't let any of the sacrificed lamb go unused. Take advantage of everything that Jesus did for us as our Passover. Now some would say, yeah, but that's just Old Testament. To me, that's a pretty weak argument because it's not even part of the law of Moses. Moses is still a couple of years away from receiving the law at the time that God identified himself as the Lord that healeth thee. They've still got to travel to Mount Sinai. And you remember all the things that happened at that place at the foot of the mountain where they made the golden calf and all that other stuff. Moses was given the Ten Commandments. God codifies in detail the blessing and the covenant that he made with Abraham but the Passover superseded any of the law which means if somebody takes the position that Jesus fulfilled the law that would not include the Passover which was before now we know Jesus did fulfill the Passover he talks to his disciples at the last supper what we know of as the last supper and he explains that the Passover represents him. He explains that the bread is his body that's broken for us. He explains that the cup, the wine in the cup represents his blood for the remission of sins. So Jesus does tell the, the, his followers, the disciples, he makes it very clear that these things represented him. But then the Bible tells us some more other things that cause us to know that it's an ongoing ordinance and not just a short-term thing. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23.
Paul is writing to the church, writing to a Gentile church. And notice that he starts off in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. Let me stop there for a second and make a couple of comments. Why did God tell Paul? Why He said he received it of the Lord. Has to be a conversation or a vision, an appearance of God some way or another. It has to be something like that. But why? At the time Paul wrote this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written and were widely distributed. And each one of them, some in more detail than the other, but each one of them tell the story of the Last Supper. And it's going to be probably 25, 30 years later, meaning past the uh, letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that John's going to come in and give us even more detail about things that happened at the Last Supper. Not so much the body and the bread, or the body and the uh, uh, blood, but he gives a great deal of detail about what God said, what Jesus said to them once Judas had gone out and left the group. Things about the Holy Spirit, things about the Christian life, and so forth. But even before that, at the time that Paul writes these things to the Corinthian church, there are three different accounts in the four Gospels. There are three different accounts of what happened at the Last Supper. Why does Paul need to know? Why does Jesus need to tell Paul what he's already read? It's got to be some reason, folks. It's got to be something. It has to stand for something. He said, For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, This is my body which is broken for you. This do ye in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Now what's the significance of showing the Lord's death? The benefit that it brings us. What was the significance of Israel's instruction or mandate to tell their children about the Passover to receive the benefits? So Paul, and and he didn't just get the revelation when he wrote the letter. When he said, that which I've delivered unto you means he's had this revelation for some time. Apparently he had it while he was there present in Corinth. But what is the significance or what's the reason why God would give him information that he already has in other letters? Meaning the, four, the three of the four Gospels. Why would he do that? Well, it would have to be, in order for God to be consistent with his word, it would have to be to bring additional revelation to us of something that we might not have known. That would certainly be true of the Gentiles and the Gentile churches. What do they know about Jewish history? It seems interesting to me that when Paul went to places, the Bible doesn't tell us much about what he did or or how he preached or things along those lines. But then when he writes back to them, like the letter that he wrote to the Galatian churches, when he writes back to them, he reminds them of things that he must have taught while he was there. He talks in Galatians 3 about Abraham's blessing. What does the Gentile church know about Abraham? Nothing unless Paul taught them. He talks about Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What Gentile's ever been under law? They would have no knowledge or in, uh, information about that whatsoever unless Paul taught it while he was there.
I don't know how extensive the teaching was as far as Israel's history is concerned. But we can see just from the letters that he wrote to the churches that he established that he leaves them with a good working knowledge of what things were like and how things were supposed to be and what God desired. Thank God he wrote these things so we can have access to. Let me start again in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The word unworthily means attitude. The word literally means decision. But it's talking about an attitude. It's talking about the manner in which they partook of the Lord's Supper. What they thought about it. The place of importance that they esteemed it to have. It's not talking about condemnation. It's not talking about going to hell. It's talking about Christians having the right attitude and the right motive in partaking of the Lord's Supper, which represents Jesus' death. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily, again, it's the manner in which they take it, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, same word, wrong attitude, wrong manner. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. It doesn't mean, con- uh, it doesn't mean damnation, it means condemnation. It, again, it's not talking about going to hell. It's talking about bringing a curse upon themselves by ignoring the truth of the word. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation or condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. To discern means to see or know. And so what Paul is talking about here by the Holy Ghost is that the attitude we should have toward the communion and the elements that it represents, the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, that should be first and foremost in our eyes and we should certainly have a reverent manner and attitude toward it. And to fail to do so brings condemnation or judgment. Now, judgment's a word we have a hard time with because most people think of judgment being standing before God, finding out you don't measure up and being sent to hell. But judgment for the believer, for the Christian, is that which brings us back to the truth of the word. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, not recognizing the value of the Lord's body and the sacrifice he made. For this cause, everybody say for this cause. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. The many sleep means die prematurely. Now notice the phrase again, for this cause. For this cause, not discerning the Lord's body, not having a right attitude to what Jesus, concerning what Jesus paid for when he died for us, not recognizing or not accepting the substitutionary work of Jesus, the entirety of the substitutionary work of Jesus. See, we've got a lot of the church, church world, that believes Jesus shed his blood for our sins. Well, that's true. But the Bible says, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he said, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost? Why are they the temple of the Holy Ghost? Because you've been bought with a price, he goes on to say. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are both God's. Both body and spirit belong to the Lord. Now why would our bodies and our spirits belong to the Lord? Because he paid the same price for both. He shed blood for both. It's the Old Testament example we have of the, of the Passover. And Paul's telling us that this just the same, works just the same in his day as it did in the beginning. 
Well, it should because God made a forever statute. This is the only place that you can ever find that spells out a reason why Christians are sick. Now, we could dig a little deeper and talk about unforgiveness. You remember in Mark chapter 11, after Jesus curses the fig tree and it raises a question with the disciples, he says, have faith in God. For whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24 goes on to say, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. That's usually where we stop. But Jesus doesn't stop. He goes on in verse 25 and says, And when you stand praying, forgive if you have all against any. For if you forgive not, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Now granted, he's he's still operating under the law. He's operating under the covenant that is about obedience and not mercy. But Jesus was faithful in giving us the most clear and concise instructions and definition of what faith is and how faith works. By saying and by praying. He's faithful to tell us that unforgiveness is the greatest hindrance. If you're not walking in forgiveness, your faith won't work. Well, so that if we were believing for healing, but we were walking in unforgiveness, that would be a reason why our faith didn't bring healing to us. So we can can skirt around the edges a little bit and find other similar passages, but this is the only place where you can see definitively why Christians are sick. Not discerning the Lord's body. For a a good part of the church, I, I hope it's not the majority, but it may be. But for a large segment of the church, they don't believe anything about Jesus paying the price for physical healing. That would be a failure to discern the Lord's body. And so just as in Paul's day, we've got the same situation in our modern day churches. Now, if Paul's telling us the truth, and if the Holy Ghost really did inspire him to tell us this, that means every time any believer on their own in church or whatever, any time a believer fails to recognize that the blood of Jesus was shed for your physical well-being is just as much as your spiritual well-being, they're eating condemnation to themselves. In that respect, it might be better not to take the Lord's Supper. There are only three ordinances that are given for the church. One's water baptism, which is just an outward sign of something that happened on the inside of you. Going into the water is the death of the old man, the stony heart, the the spiritually dead man. Rising up out of the water is a sign of the new birth, and the newness of life in Christ. But the Bible really doesn't give us any instructions or commandments concerning water baptism. It's interesting to me that Paul talks about water baptism being a hot-button issue in his day. Just 30 or so years after Jesus is crucified and risen. Paul gets to the point where he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody. Apparently, it was one of those things where people were comparing their spiritual pedigree by who baptized them in water. So Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody except this one, this one, and this one. So just as water baptism has always been an issue, it started in Paul's day. And so water baptism is a good thing. It's something that every believer should want to do. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my father. And that's what water baptism is. Water baptism is a declaration, an open declaration. I belong to God. Now, in in our country, it's not really a big deal in the sense that people aren't risking their lives to be baptized. But in other parts of the world, they are. And so that declaration 
carries much more weight for them than it might for you and me. When it comes to water baptism, so many times people in our nation are just looking for a convenient time or place or way to get it done. But in other lands, it's a death warrant. They're putting their own lives at risk. But as I said, the Bible doesn't give us any declaration or any instructions about water baptism in the sense that, well, for example, if there was a mandate that within five days of getting saved, you had to be baptized in water. But that doesn't exist. It's left open to the individual and to make their own choice about what, how, where, and how. What, how to decide what they want to do. <laughs> the second ordinance of the church is the communion. And we've seen here how that the communion with the right attitude based on knowledge of the truth of the word if the cause for them being weak and sickly and people dying prematurely was not discerning the Lord's body then the fact that we do discern the Lord's body should indicate to us that there's a healing power of God at work in us all the time see folks divine healing is not God's best walking in divine health is Thank God we have opportunity to change situations through faith when we need healing. But divine health is God's plan. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 verse 11, I believe it was. He said, if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Thank God he does. He will quicken your mortal bodies by that spirit. Well, that's divine health. That's the healing power of God working continuously in us to keep us in a place of health and then finally the third ordinance that's given to the church is over in James chapter 5 where he says is any sick among you let them call for the elders of the church and let them the elders pray over them anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith not the elders not the oil but the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick and the Lord shall raise them up. Greek scholars tell us that when Jesus, or when uh, James asked by the Holy Ghost, is any sick among you? That carries a little stronger meaning than the way it's translated. It literally means, is any of you past getting help for yourself? See, receiving healing by faith, walking in divine health, would be God's optimal. It would be his best. But there are times where we come to the place where we need help. That's what that's talking about in James 5. Is any of you past getting the help you need for yourself? Let them call for the elders of the church. And again, it's not the elders, it's not the oil, it's the prayer of faith that heals the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, notice the parallel again between sickness and sin. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Those are the only three ordinances given to the church. Two of the three have a direct connection to physical healing. Water baptism is the only ordinance given to the church that doesn't have a, an obvious and a direct link. To the healing power of God for our physical bodies. So now the Bible says. The Bible tells us that in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word should be established. Right? We've got the original Passover. Where God within a matter of a few days. Tells him I am the Lord that healed thee. And I will always be the God that healeth thee. We've got Hezekiah. That offered the Passover sacrifice or instituted the Passover sacrifice during his reign. And the Bible tells us specifically that he healed the people. Now, some people want to argue about maybe that means spiritual healing or restoration or whatever. Folks, there is no such thing as spiritual healing. God doesn't heal your spirit. He recreates it. 
That's a huge difference. The first way would be God trying to dress you up. But what good would that do? If you're still spiritually dead, you're spiritually dead. But the Bible goes to great lengths to tell us, to, to tell us that he takes away the spiritually dead man, the dead spirit on the inside of us, and recreates it. That's why we call it the new birth. And then he puts his spirit in ours. Thank God he does. So this word that's used concerning healing the people in Hezekiah's day is never used in any way other than bodily healing. Now there are other words he could have chosen if he was talking about an, a spiritual change. If he was talking about a blessing that came upon them. They couldn't be born again at that time. But if he was talking about a, a special blessing that came upon them. There's plenty of words that could have been used to describe that. But the Holy Ghost chose the word that means bodily healing. I hope God was smart enough to know that he was using that word. He used the word that fit. So there's two Old Testament sacrifice or two Old Testament examples. Now we've got the New Testament where Paul says the only reason, the only reason he gives, and again we could find others, we could search around for others, but as far as the scripture being specifically identified with this condition, here's the only scripture that tells us specifically why Christians are sick. Not discerning the Lord's body. I want you to consider something. I don't know if, uh, let me get the ushers going for the kids. They want to come in here for the, to join the parents for communion. So let's get them going. I want you to consider something. If Jesus did pay the same price for you to be born again as for you to walk in health, if his blood, if Paul knew what he was saying, if the Holy Ghost inspired him to say it, that both our body and our spirits were bought with the price, we know the price had to be at the shedding of Jesus' blood. If that's really what he meant, then what do you think it How do you think Jesus feels when the church denies healing? I'm not sure how it works when we get to heaven. I do know the Bible says God will wipe away every tear. And that's an indication to me that there are things that people are going to be crying about. Now, folks, there's only two things I can think of that people would be crying about when they get to heaven. One might be others that they knew or loved that didn't make it. And the second one would be a look back at our lives to see the missed opportunities. I consider that category to be one that people would include not recognizing or not believing, not accepting that Jesus paid the price for our, our healing just like he paid the price for our sins. That would even be more so and magnified more so by those preachers that teach against it. See, there are some things when we get to heaven we'll have to answer for. The Bible says some men's sins follow. Uh, some men's sins go before them, and other men's sins follow after. If I'm preaching or teaching something contrary to the Word, even though my heart might be right in it, that's something I'll have to answer for. Paul talked about that too. He said, "Don't be many masters. Don't try to be somebody else's teacher, because we receive a greater condemnation." I've always found it to be advantageous just to take the word at face value. Come on in, Lauren. Send them out. 
Let the kids find their, their parents. All you parents turn around and look toward the back. Folks, the communion of the Lord or the Lord's table as it's sometimes called is of huge importance. Huge importance. It says everything about not just what Jesus did but it says everything about our attitude towards what Jesus did. It's intended to be a reminder. And again, it's not told us that we're supposed to do it once a month or once a quarter or whatever. Paul just said, as often as you do it, you show the Lord's death. The Lord's Supper is huge. And it will forever be. Okay, guys, come on.